0: Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. If I had to pick a favorite saint, if I'm allowed to pick a favorite saint, one of them, probably top three or four, would have to be St. Augustine of Hippo, who lived from 354 to 453. And really, St. Augustine is one of the most important saints in the history of the church. Without him, we certainly wouldn't have Western Christianity or Anglicanism as we know it. Closely associated with Augustine, if you've ever heard his story, is his mother Monica, who was a pious woman who prayed fervently for her son before he became a Christian. Before he became a Christian, he lived a life of hedonism ensnared particularly by the vice of lust. Yet, and I'm sure in thanks no small part to his mother's prayers, over time, Augustine encountered faithful Christians. And he heard stories of the holy lives of saints. And he began to recognize a tension within himself where he felt pulled towards the good and the true and the beautiful while also being unable to accomplish those things that are true and good and beautiful. Very much echoing St. Paul's sentiment in Romans chapter 7. For the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I do. The tension in St. Augustine's autobiography, which is called Confessions, really culminates when he recounts how he and his friend Olypius were in a garden one day. And while they were there, St. Augustine heard a child's voice say, Pick up and read. Looking around, he saw an open Bible, which he picked up, and the page was open to our epistle lesson for today, specifically Romans 13, 13 through 14. And at this moment in his story, Augustine knew that he had faith which was stirred by the scriptures and became a Christian, giving up his sexual addictions and desire for worldly success. This story speaks, I think, not only to the power of scripture in general, but of our epistle reading for the day in particular, which really is the quintessential Advent passage for three reasons. First, it shows how our Lord connects the Old and New Testaments. Second, it reminds us that Christ is returning, will return, to judge the living and the dead. And finally, it exhorts us to holy living. How is the Old Testament connected to the New Testament? Or put another way, how is the law which was given to Israel in the Old Testament related to the grace that we receive from Christ In the New Testament, these are questions that have led to much strife in the church because different answers can pose different problems. Marcion, who was one of the first heretics the church had to face, tried to answer this question by saying, there is no connection between the old and the new. Saying that the God that's depicted in the Old Testament was cruel and vicious. So he cut out the Old Testament and the parts of the New Testament that he didn't like, that he deemed to be too Jewish, leaving behind only parts of the gospel according to St. Luke and a couple of Pauline letters. This is not how the scriptures in the New Testament handle the Old Testament. So Paul gives us a better perspective in Romans 13. However, in order to understand what he's doing in our epistle reading this morning, it helps to go backwards a chapter to chapter 12 which begins with an exhortation. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present yourselves a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So the Christian is to be one who lives constantly as a sacrifice to God, and who ought to be transformed, changed for the better, by having a mind that is constantly being renewed, conformed to the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. Based on this exhortation, Paul goes into chapter 13 of Romans by discussing our relation to governing authorities, to whom he says we should submit. His argument then unfolds from lesser to greater. If you obey governing authorities, how much more should you obey God? But how do we obey God? Well, the answer for Paul, and the answer that bridges the gap between Old and New Testament, is love. And he doesn't mean love in a sentimental way, but in the self-sacrificial way that he discussed in chapter 12. The kind of love that makes us living sacrifices. <clears throat> At the beginning of the epistle lesson, Paul recites the sixth, fifth, seventh, and ninth commandments from the Decalogue, which we recited together earlier today. This section of the Ten Commandments is the most explicitly preoccupied with one's relationship to their neighbors. But the significance for Paul isn't the particular commandments per se, He really could have substituted any of the 613 commandments found in the Torah of the Old Testament here to make his point. Because the point isn't the specific commands, but the principle that courses through the entire law of the Old Testament. A principle that was first articulated in Leviticus 19.18, which Jesus later used as part of the summary of the law. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And so we're told that love fulfills the law because it wishes no harm to one's neighbor. If one loves, one will refrain from adultery, from killing, from stealing, from bearing false witness, and from coveting. And this is true of the other sins that Paul lists later in the passage, rioting, by which he means carousing or wild partying, drunkenness, chambering, which is a way of saying sexual immorality, wantonness, which is sensual enjoyment or pursuit of physical pleasure, strife, or envy. Each of these sins have two common threads. First, they go against God's ideal for the human person. One who engages in those behaviors is not the kind of person that they should be. But second, and relatedly, These behaviors prevent actual community, which has to be based on self-sacrificial love and the pursuit of mutual flourishing. According to commentator Jerome Murphy O'Connor, Paul's catalog suggests not only a failure to recognize the other, but an active repulsion of the other. The shift in Paul and the subsequent Christian tradition from the Old Testament is a shift from focusing on the particular commandments to a general ethic or posture of love, which doesn't minimize the commandments in the Old Testament. It actually makes them more difficult, as we see in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. The law tells us not to commit murder. Great, hopefully most of us can check that box. But love tells us that we should avoid even anger directed at another. Maybe we don't all check that box. The law tells us not to commit adultery, but love tells us not to even lust after someone in the privacy of our own hearts. Love raises or elevates the standard. But the reason it's important is that God doesn't want legalistic and mechanistic obedience. He wants us to be fully human He wants us to be fully dependent on the Holy Ghost. So we retain the Ten Commandments. We read them today. We know the law's commands. We review them at morning and evening prayer when we have Old Testament readings. But we approach these things differently now because we are in Christ, who fulfilled the law when we could not. Now, Paul's summary of the law is made urgent by the fact that he reminds us that the end is coming. Christ came into the world by his incarnation, something we focus on during this season of Advent and the coming season of Christmas. He also comes into our souls through the means of grace. But finally, he will come at the end of the age to judge both the quick and the dead. So Paul says, now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. It's possible that St. Paul, along with many early Christians of the first generation, believed that this advent of our Lord would happen during their own lifetime. But just because he hasn't returned yet shouldn't make us apathetic. Quite the opposite. This past week in the Daily Office lectionary, we were reading the epistle of 2 Peter at morning prayer. And in that epistle, St. Peter indicts those who scoffed at the idea of our Lord's returning. And the reason they scoffed is they said, where's the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. Peter compares people who think like this to those who ignored the warnings of the flood in the days of Noah and therefore perished. So Peter exhorts his audience, saying, We, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. The impending day of the Lord should light a fire under each of us because we know that when it does come, it will be swift and it will be sudden. Paul's thinking in the epistle this morning parallels Peter's in Second Peter. Paul combines ethics and eschatology. He tells us that how we act in the world now should be conditioned by the fact that our Lord could return at any moment. Knowing the end makes the present significant. But because we don't know when the end will come, there's a sense in which it's always being present. It's always unveiling what things actually look like. Because this perspective forces us to ask ourselves, are you ready to be judged right now? Paul likens this Christian awareness of the end and its effect on our lives as being awake in a dark world full of sin. This points to the fact that the Christian life is one that's always lived in a kind of tension, and already but not yet. Christ is the light of the world, we confess that, so we aren't trapped in the darkness of sin anymore. But until he comes at the end of the age, we can say it's not fully day outside. We're in a perpetual dusk. And in our own lives, we can attest to this through our experiences. Because on the one hand, we have been brought into salvation by our baptisms and participation in the sacraments of the church. But at the same time, many of us would acknowledge that we are not all that we should be yet. But what we do know is that the works which belong in the darkness, the rioting, the drunkenness, the chambering, the wantonness, the strife, and the envy, are dirty rags that need to be disposed of. There is no neutral ground. We are either clothed in the darkness, or we are putting on the armor of light, as Paul says. And the armor of light is certainly an allusion to the armor of God, which he treats extensively in Ephesians 6. But it stands for faith, hope, love, truth, righteousness, and knowledge of God's word. Paul tells us to put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make not provision for the flesh, to fulfill the lust thereof. Putting him on means unity with him. It means solidarity with our Lord and those who are in him. Commentator Michael Gorman says to be in Christ is to wear him. Those in him wear or participate or become the righteousness of God. In Galatians 3.27, St. Paul describes baptism as our initial putting on of Christ, probably because in baptism, when somebody came out of the water, they were given a white robe. But here in Romans, the emphasis is on the living out of that baptism constantly and perpetually. We have put Christ on in baptism, and we must now live into that baptism and continue putting Christ on more and more. And this is why we have holy water in fonts by the doors. Because it's a reminder for us when we walk by, when we dip our fingers, when we make the sign of the cross, that we are to live into our baptism. We are to continue putting on our Lord Jesus Christ. So here we are at the beginning of the Advent season, a new year. And I think that this reading from Romans sets the tone for our observance of this season of penitent expectation. Knowing that he is coming again, we ask for God's grace to cast away the works of darkness that prevent us from living a life of love. Simultaneously, we ask for grace to put on the armor of light, to put on our Lord Jesus Christ, and we acquire that by leading lives characterized by love. We do this knowing that Christ will come again and with a hope and sure confidence that he will be faithful to the promise that he has given to us at our baptisms, that he would raise us to life immortal. So I encourage you to take advantage of this season. Immerse yourself in the scriptures. Immerse yourself in prayer. Pray the daily office in the Book of Common Prayer. And as you do, spend much time in reflection. But above all, Put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make no provision for the flesh. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost.